I'm just reminded I'd promised to take my young ward, Dick Grayson, fishing, if you'll excuse me. Biff, bam, pow, it's time for another Batman Land. Our weekly chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. There's a problem. Better let us handle this. Each week we're joined by a guest where we discuss the Batman episodes to air this week on SBS Viceland. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. It's Batman! And we need him now. My name is Dan Barrett, billionaire playboy and a digital editor at SBS, and I'm joined here by my own personal lucky day, Nick Bassine. Let's go! I don't know what you mean by that, but I'm very happy to be here. Not a Three Amigos fan? What? Oh, that's a Three Amigos reference. I love Three Amigos. Not enough. No. <laughs> it's been a little while. Thank you very much. We've just heard from SBS and I guess maybe Australian media's Dusty Bottoms. It's Benjamin Law. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Three Amigos references, not really busted out that often. No, and, it, and to be honest, I remember less of the film. I remember my feeling towards it, which was one of great warmth and affection, but I don't remember anything about it except their kind of Macarena move yeah, the, uh, to, and, the, and the final thrust. Yeah, it's like the... And that was kind of poof. it. I must yeah. have been like eight years old or something. The Laughing Bush? Mm. That was a singing bush. Singing bush. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You're thinking of like a video that you're watching last night. Oh, geez. Are we getting there already? We started early. (laughs) Hello. It is not the end, but the beginning. (laughs) Mm. Uh, But we are here to talk about the Batman TV show. Uh, We're talking about two episodes, both of them featuring Frank Gorshin as the (laughs) Riddler. I went into the Batman series initially loving Frank Gorshin, but with every episode, I just kind of feel a little bit more disenfranchised with him. (laughs) Nick, you remain a fan, though. No, no, I'm getting more and more irritated. His maniacal forced laugh where he looks like he's about to have an aneurysm is stressing me out. Yeah, he's going to bust a nerve. Uh, But but arguably the character of the Riddler is irritating in and of himself. Yeah, I don't think it's Gorshin's fault. No, I mean, you've got a supervillain who relies on, like his very, very um, character is about asking these dad-like riddles, you know, like they're really, really terrible. (laughs) He's got this shrill kind of laugh and he laughs at anything. 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 (laughs) And you just remember like all those people that you meet at work and you get after work drinks or you've been on a terrible date and like, okay, I've got a riddle for you. And then they give you the answer and they laugh maniacally. And it's like, I don't want that in my life. I don't want that in a supervillain either. No. 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 And people that laugh at their own jokes in general. God, it makes my skin crawl. And also also student filmmakers with delusions (laughs) of grandeur, as was the case in this episode. Ready to roll, Riddler, baby. Set it up. Nick, as is the case always, I don't entirely understand what this episode's about. I watched (laughs) it, could not follow the narrative. Please explain us what happened. Okay, we start at a silent film festival where the Riddler does a fantastic Charlie Chaplin impression, then straight up gasses the third person of color that's appeared on this show so far. Well, I'm afraid you're not allowed in here. Does he rob the bank? Of course not. He leaves a riddle. Toughens too. This needs more research. But he does rob a bakery with the help of some sleeping cream, which is not a euphemism for anything. These are special pies. Filming that, as well as Batman and Robin's attempt to stop the Riddler and his gang at the Gotham Library, where they drop a big book on on their heads. The Cape Crusaders don't see this coming because they don't seem to be cut out for this type of work. Amateur group. After cracking up at the dailies, the Riddler and his gang spike some party lemonade, turning it into haterade. Everyone seems to be in the most incredibly bad temper. Everyone at the party turns into an a-hole, starts cold-cocking each other. Say that once again, stupid. Batman tries to calm everyone down. Citizens, have you all lost your senses? And Robin, who's dumb as bricks, falls for the little Bo Peep needing directions move and gets himself gassed for the 300th time in the series. Oh, how clever you 
The Riddler then tries to murder Robin by bisecting his body with a buzzsaw. Split two halves. Batman captures the lady gang member and violates her constitutional rights. I might forget myself and do you violence. Bringing her back to the Batcave for further questioning. Take her to the Batcave. The Riddler tosses Robin off a ledge and he catches Batman's rope in his teeth like a halibut. Holy molars, am I ever glad I take good care of my teeth. The Riddler then dresses up like a cowboy to steal some silent films from the rich guy so they can sell it back to him, but the dynamic duos show up and beat the hell out of them. For her birthday, Bruce and Dick give Anne Harriet a not at all impressive gift of meeting Batman and Robin. Many happy returns. Then they tag team kiss her. Merciful heavens to Betsy, it's Batman and Robin. Which she's really into. What don't you understand about that, Dan? Oh, look, I mean, it's all come so much clearer to me. It's pretty clear. I really do feel there's probably a time where we're going to launch the Batman Land drinking game anytime Halibut's mentioned from here on in. (laughs) Can I offer my interpretation of the episode? (laughs) Go for it. I think it's about the corruption in the Hollywood film industry. Good grief! You know, you've got someone there who's basically a Lars von Trier character. Admit the difference, yeah. He's got a very, very clear idea of the film he wants to make. And it's kind of made with sadism when you think about it. He has this idea that people need to suffer for their art. He's going to make these actors unwillingly do things. It's very Dogma 95 What's Dogma 66? Yeah, that's it, Dogma, the other Dogma. (laughs) And then he basically puts people through their paces and doesn't care when they get hurt. There is a lot of roofing going on, which, you know, is very relevant at the moment. I do Uh, want to talk about this. With a whiff of bad gas. Absolutely. There's just a lot of sedation. Um, against people's will and then there's like this really nasty commentary about this woman is a bad woman because she didn't fulfill her Hollywood dreams and now she can only act out the only way she can which is to destroy people's lives a star that was never born venting her disappointment on society also doesn't pass the Bechdel test because it's just one woman and she doesn't have any friends and she's just there as this kind of prop to carry out Riddler's horrible horrible plan well, I'm just concerned Helen Reese is going to rip this podcast apart now. <laughs> but Nick, your thoughts? Well, that, that's kind of a common thread. The way the ladies are treated on this show mm. is sometimes very highly questionable. And yes. in this one, Riddler gets kind of handsy with her, tosses around a little bit like a rag doll. It's very mm. uncomfortable. Sedation and the gassing of people is pretty much a constant. Well, in fairness, men and women are gassed and and creamed, if we, if you will, <laughs> on this episode, which sounds quite graphic. But yeah. we're talking about sleeping cream. Sleeping cream. There's a lot of drugging happening here, which yeah. is probably more common in the 60s with barbiturates and things like that, I guess. No noxious after effects whatever. Tell Batman it was like waking from a strange, refreshing dream. I was a little concerned in this episode. I, we'll talk maybe about the more serious aspects of it before we do our usual nonsense that we run through. But there was the moment where Batman is in Commissioner Gordon's office and mm. he says that he's going to take uh, the Riddler's mole. What was her name? There's always a woman as part of the I've villain's her crew. Name. Uh, uh, maybe like, her name. Uh, luscious maybe. Balloons or something yeah, like that. Maybe her balloons. name is Mole. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's well, we'll call sexist. her Luscious. My name is Pauline. Okay, so there's a difference in language that we use in 2017 to 1966 when this is originally made. So some of the language feels a lot more salacious now than it did back then. He was effectively going to take Luscious, quote-unquote. My name is Pauline. Uh, back to the Batcave to work her over... And to do that, there was going to be... Yeah. He's gassing her to do that. Yes. It was incredibly uncomfortable, especially this week. We've been hearing about a lot of Hollywood 
inappropriate activities. Mm. It's been very firmly on the mind. And then coming across this, I was definitely feeling a bit more uneasy than I otherwise would. Adam West's delivery as a superhero, I think, is impeccable. Yeah. But when he talks about gassing a woman and taking her back to his cave and his delivery... It's a little uncomfortable. And, and as much as it was commentary, or I felt like kind of meta-commentary on the TV and Hollywood industry, mm. unintentionally so, I also felt it was kind of like... Um like uh, it was a conversation about the Geneva Convention or something like that. The way that he picks up on Commissioner Gordon and he says, I need a witness. It was very kind of zero dark 30 for a while there. It's just like, <laughs> make sure that I'm not torturing this young woman. When it's a question of Robin's safety, I don't entirely trust myself. And then Police Commissioner Gordon is like, well, yes, I can attest to the highest courts that you did no such thing. Almost gives a wink. And it's like, yeah, this whole thing is terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Batman's craft work was definitely... A Above par. It was basically a waterboarding scene. Very much so. And yeah, just the way that he was even saying to Commissioner Gordon that he needed a second set of eyes. Because, because I don't trust myself. And exactly. it's like, oh my God, what are you going to do to her otherwise? Ew. Yeah, I mean, sure, she wasn't playing ball with the rest of the police. Actually, that was a weird thing. Um, O'Hara at one stage says that oh, she knows her police rights as though they were going to... God knows what they were going to do if she wasn't more aware of, like, her legal rights. I have a feeling that Gotham City in the 60s was like Brisbane in the 1960s. <laughs> it was a bit of a police state. Dude, unfair. <laughs> <laughs> as incompetent as the Gotham City Police Department are, they do not deserve that. <laughs> but maybe let's talk about the show and we'll sort of unpack it as the show went on. It opens up at that silent movie festival and the audience are really into silent films. Yeah. Loving it in 66. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the Riddler turns up, but dressed as Charlie Chaplin, and the entire thing seems to be to steal what would be like, what, a hundred bucks out of the box office. Hmm. Like, it's a pretty poor scheme to do it. But what's notable here, because I was doing the Googling, the actual scene itself where you've got him dressed as Charlie Chaplin, that's actually straight from the comic books. Oh. So there's a comic that this opening scene's based on, but it's not the Riddler, it's the Joker in the comics. Mm. I've always wondered how much of this particular incarnation of the show has been taken from the comic books because I've always felt that it's the very colourful camp winky wink kind of version of the comic books but mm. it actually sounds like a lot of the show does take direct cues from from the original source well it comes at a weird time of batman's history where through the 50s batman was this really crazy sci-fi character he was playing around with aliens a fair bit and there was just mm. all these really grand concepts but as the show kicked off they were trying to pair batman back so i think there's only about a year difference where you had like the comic sort of feeling a bit more like the tv show so there's probably not that much that they can sort of draw upon for the sort of more grounded but still hyper realistic batman tv show they did a little bit of the um the intimidating aura of batman using deception and shadows at uh, the very end he, he, he does that pose is it at the end yeah. at the very end yeah yeah, yeah. i always enjoy that mm. yeah, he's only done that two or three times in a tv show yeah but yeah. that's that's the and that's the huge thing with the inception of batman isn't it yeah uh, but Ben, what Nick's noticed in the last, you know, since we've been doing this podcast is the number of times that moments from the TV show have worked their way into other media. Yes. Okay, so the most notable being the first appearance of the Joker has him dressed as like Pagliacci, the opera clown. Mm. Okay, and it's the same mask that Heath Ledger has at the beginning of The Dark Knight oh, when wow. he's robbing the bank. Like moments like that, like you see quite a fair bit through the show. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've got to go through it because, um, to be honest, I, I don't even know what episode we're up to, but I, I never watched them in sequence as they were broadcast on television and yeah. I don't know which order they are in. So if you showed me the first episode, I wouldn't even be sure like that was necessarily the first introduction, but I'd love to go back and find out where all those cues come from. Yeah, like we're roughly the same age. So I'm uh-huh. guessing you're watching it like I was as a kid. Yep. Channel 10 in the afternoon. Yes. And same bat time, same bat channel. Yeah, and I had no idea that, you know, what order it was because I don't know if Channel 10 were playing them in the right way through. All I knew was because it's always like a two-hit punch. Yeah. It's like here's the setup, here's the cliffhanger, and here's where they're going to beat each other up in the second episode. That's all that I knew. Every else was kind of up for grabs and i don't well, think there's usually it's, like a weak fight scene right before the cliffhanger just to give mm, you the couple of biffs and powers for each episode until it crescendos into its operatic climax in episode two very much so but we do continue on from the box office scene so what usually happens so there's a very specific format to batman and episodes where there's the crime at the beginning and then the first time that we're in stately wayne manor you see batman and robin will be there sitting on the couch engaged in some sort of activity it'll be a game of 3d chess it'll be um bruce teaching dicker language puzzles upside down puzzles yeah there's always something then what happens is uh, Commissioner Gordon rings the bat phone, Alfred answers it, comes into the lounge and says, hey, look, this is going on. They come up with a excuse, which is in no way suspect, so that Aunt Harriet will be none the wiser as to what's going on. So just to backtrack a little, yeah. who is Aunt Harriet? Because in my memory of watching the show, she was sometimes there, but does she live there or what's going on there? So she's there in every episode of the show for the first two seasons, except part one of this two-parter, huh. which is not there. Okay, but she's supposed to be Dick's aunt. Right. She's definitely Dick's I'm pretty sure aunt. that's the relationship. It's not Bruce's aunt. Uh, and see, probably is, not this Alfred's. Is, this so. is ambiguous. For, for a show that gives you so much exposition as to what's <laughs> know, going on, no one really knows who Aunt Harriet is. But there's a lot of sexual attention between her and Alfred, isn't there? Or am I picking that up uh, incorrectly? I don't know. Well, by the end of these two episodes, she's getting like kind of sandwiched by two men that she felt like she looks a bit flustered by the end. I feel like she has a bit of a thing for Batman and Robin. Yeah, I think they're just two old souls who found each other. Okay. I reckon Alfred's a massive homosexual. And I say that as a pro-homosexual. <laughs> myself after all i was a witness wait what what makes you say that i don't know well well, i mean i think the whole show is pretty gay yes on on a lot of levels and i mean that on like a a semiotic level and an aesthetic level but i also mean on a literal level (laughs) as well because i mean i was taking screenshots of this episode uh when you've got that scene where he's talking about whether they're doing puzzles or reading a book or doing adult coloring in whatever they're doing um (laughs) yeah and when when he picks up the phone and uh robin just kind of leans in it's a it's a lean that's more than platonic i think the the just just the distance between Mm. the chin and shoulder i just don't think you know what good crime fighting is (laughs) (laughs) no i do and it's super gay yeah so this episode's different in that they don't have the aunt harriet excuse which is usually them going fishing or something like that and sometimes yeah it's it's fishing see that's the that's the excuse they use in brokeback mountain excuse me is it yeah yeah we're just gonna go fishing So all of those excuses, yeah, and this, this episode didn't have it, but they, they all sound very euphemistic. It's yes. always, it's either fishing or I just remembered there's um, a couple of guys we have to meet in the back alley somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's always extremely suspicious. They're off to get some poppers. I was paying respect. <laughs> it wasn't just a dark alley. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the episode's weird in that they don't come up with those excuses. They're just sitting on the couch and Batman for the first time answers his own phone. 
Oh. I mean, he's got paid help for that, but he's it, not. This is the first yeah. series of the show, is that right? Yes, so this is the second to... last episode of the first season. So do you get the sense that they're still honing down that very particular format? It's like it's like kids' storybooks, right? That, that mm. rhyme and repetition. Are they still trying to figure out what's working so they'll bake it into the second, third, subsequent seasons? That's I'm not sure question. that's entirely it. So if you actually watch the show week by week, which we have been doing, mm. uh, you find it's like a really weird change of tone from episode to episode. So you could mark that being like different writers on the show and different directors, but even some of the same writers who do a few episodes, it's still wildly different. It's so interesting because on a normal show, you would expect that sort of development and that sort of evolution, but I feel like they're just winging it every time. Yeah, it's that's pretty kind of spectacular though, because later on it becomes so predictable in a really comforting way. Like I say that, I say that in a pro-predictable way. But then here, I mean, we, you were talking um, about how the first episode is a bit darker in It's a little bit Dan. darker. But then there's a few episodes midway through that come darker again. So it's, mm. a, it's very sort of unusual. Um, it's interesting to know, and I don't think I've busted this bat fact out yet for the podcast. Bat fact. Bat fact number 27. <laughs> With the show, they never had a writer's room for it. Oh. So the main writer on it, Lorenzo Semple Jr., essentially what he That's did great was... It's a great, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, he had a lot of writers who were just sending him scripts by mail. Oh. So there were just writers across the US of whom were mailing their work in quite literally. It actually did make me think of that. This is a bit nerdy, but because I'm working in TV screenwriting at the moment, it's really fast and it's digital. Mm. And, and you need to kind of replicate things really fast, which you can do in the digital age. So back then I was just thinking, how do you get your storylines? How do you beat out something together? Yeah. And then how do you deliver it? Like there's even, even, the characters themselves where they're like Commissioner Gordon I need you to tell blah blah and I'm like but wait how are you going to do that without SMS you know like even even in the show itself it makes me think communication you have to you have to be a bit more creative with the technology at your disposal yeah and I mean maybe the reason why it's so different episode to episode and maybe the reason why as you said it probably becomes a bit more streamlined for later seasons Mm. is we're four months into the show so by the time that a lot of the scripts were probably in the system being made, like writers probably hadn't had a chance to really see the show and actually get a sense Figure of... Figure out what worked, what, what the didn't consistency work. is. Absolutely. Yeah. So the weird thing, and getting back to the fact that it's quite weird the way they answer the phone themselves, there's a weird moment where Dick and, Rob, uh, Dick and uh, Bruce start running towards their poles to go oh, sliding down. They bump down, into each other. Bump into each other. So weird. It seemed to me like it was a mistake, but he said, excuse me. Yeah, they just yeah. said, let's keep it. Let's just keep it. Keep rolling. Keep rolling. <laughs> That's what I assume. It's so weird. There is, well, there is a strong reason where, why Batman and Robin are such an iconically gay duo or at least claimed by the gay community, which is like that a lot of us watch that show and even if we didn't have the vocabulary to articulate what drew us to it, well, one, the costumes, two, colour and movement, and three, it really felt like... A future we could envisage. We will lead our discreet bachelor lives and have really interesting role play at night. <laughs> well, there's always a lot of talk about the poles. Mm, yes. The bat poles are very prominent in every episode. They have to be and slippery to get down fast too. I think Alfred works on them, lubes them. <laughs> With WD-40. Something. <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a prominent theme, a prominent uh, conceit. Mm. Yeah, he's always out there with the wet stuff. <laughs> uh, there's an interesting scene with a security guard of whom is confronted by the Riddler and his goons, and he doesn't know who the Riddler is. 
Now, I don't really know much about the local Sydney crime scene, mm. like the various syndicates. But generally, a lot of mobsters who operate in modern-day society don't get around in lavish green costumes with question marks all over it. I think they should, though. Well, they should. And if that happened, <laughs> I would probably recognise them on an individual basis. Yes. How does he not know the Riddler? Like, how poor is the news services across Gotham City for him not to be across this by now? Well, we did say it was like Brisbane in the 1960s. It's probably a one-newspaper town. That's a fair enough point. <laughs> I kind of feel he is a security guard. He works in, quote-unquote, law enforcement. Mm. So I feel he should be across this. But then, to be fair, by the time you really get into the seasons of Batman as well, there are a lot of people to keep up with. I mean, how many, how many villains are we talking about operating live within Gotham City? City at any moment. Well, this is third, like the Riddler's third appearance in the show, or is it oh, fourth? Well, no, he, three. Then he should really know. I was just thinking, yeah. like, if there's a roster or whatever, you might not necessarily be up to date with who's who's active and who's in prison. Well, you've got to know your Jokers, you've got to know your Riddlers and mm. Penguins and Catwoman, but then you've got, you know, your Bookworms. You've got your King Tut. King Tut. King Tut. Uh, well, wait a minute, which one was Bookworm again? That sounds uh, familiar. Bookworm was from last week, I believe, and that was Roddy McDowell. I've just got like an image of the Channel 7 bookworm in my head, <laughs> the, the kind of puppet that looks like a circumcised no, penis. It, it's nothing that villainous. Right, yeah. okay. Were there any other female villains besides Catwoman? Uh, look, there have been a couple. So, was, Do they have Poison Ivy on this show? No, Poison Ivy was a later thing. Oh. I think it's like maybe a 70s comic creator. That's a shame. Oh, but never for the TV show. No, so there's a couple of other female creators. There is the great Zelda the Great, okay, which is... <laughs> Who could forget? Batman Land's favourite villain. <laughs> Yeah, so you've got her and then Catwoman, I think, have been the only two female villains for the season so far. But you do have a couple coming. So Ma Parker is coming Ma up in the second Parker. season. Strap yourselves in, gentlemen. Outstanding. That does sound familiar. From the Dukes yeah. of Hazard. I'd like to think so. They're getting around in little Daisy Dukes. I have to say, I really did like it when Batgirl started becoming a thing, which I know a lot of people would have thought ruined the entire show. But for me, that purple costume... Pretty neat. Very sparkly. A lot I of was glitter. into it. Mm. Yeah. Now, for listeners of this program, I, I, I give Robin a lot of uh, crap for being stupid. Yeah. I think he's, he's he, pretty dumb. But, it, but to be fair, he solves riddles very fast. He does, but at the beginning of every episode, the beginning is always based on his lack of knowledge mm. in some basic uh, concept. I mean, he, he is a bit basic himself. And, it's true. But then it occurred to me, he has been gassed so many times. What kind of brain damage does he have? He probably has Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, what's to say that he actually lives in that mansion, in that cave, with any free will whatsoever? He, he I mean, probably, it's a dark reading of the text, I know. He might not know what reality is anymore. No, he might be like, you know, uh, Brie Larson in Room, but with a fancy costume. Oh, my God. This what? is the reading of Batman we've been waiting what for. If, what if the entirety of Batman is just Robin's interpretation of his reality through gas? I mean, you need a couple of interstitial scenes where he's cowering in a corner shaking, don't gas me again, please. That's true. No, Daddy, like, no. You can tell yeah. he's about to come out of it, then he gets the gas again. <sighs> oh, yeah. Painful. This is probably a good segue to talk about the <laughs> sleeping cream. Sleeping cream. Oh, man, with nuts. Nuts? Nuts to you. <laughs> it's very viscous. It's a very viscous way of taking someone's consciousness away from them. Now, yeah. in, the, in the 60s, they were aware of double entendres. They were aware of... Rehypnol. Yeah. I just can't imagine. Yeah, it's a kid's show. 
Mm. It's sleeping cream. That's what they get thrown at them. Yes. Sleeping cream. Quit sleeping cream and nuts. Sounds horrible. <laughs> Mother Gotham, never bake this pie. It's topped with sleeping cream. I do have to say, though, after you've had like a really decent creamy dessert, you do feel tired. <laughs> Like maybe it was just ordinary cream that was just so rich, so rich in protein and lactose that people just immediately... Hey, there's a guy I want to highlight in this episode. Uh, it's an actor named Francis X. Bushman, which may be the greatest also name great that name. Hollywood's wow. ever produced. He played the character of Mr. Van Jones, and Van Jones, not to be confused with the African-American CNN political commentator. Mm. But he was a silent film actor of whom in the TV show here, which is actually his last on-screen appearance in anything. So it's kind of fitting that in the show he's really hardcore about his silent films because he started out in silent movies. So he was in almost 200 feature films. Which character is he playing in the show? The rich Uh, guy that they rob at the the, end. The the silent film aficionado. Yeah. Yeah. The really cantankerous guy at the beginning. But you find out that maybe he's just stressed out because he's the one behind this entire scheme. What? He's not behind it. Well, he is. He was the one that paid the Riddler to go and make the silent film, which is what this entire... You should see Nick's face right now. It's remember just th- like, what? Remember that he synopsis was dead all read? the time? Oh, my God. You wrote the synopsis. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, That's the bewitching effect of this show. It very much is. Anyway, he made almost 200 feature films, 175 of them before 1920. Jesus. Would have been a busy dude. He there are lots of those kinds of actors on this show, just silent genre movie champs, people that have been and done the hard work. I also wonder if this actor even knew that he was on a show called Batman or whether he was just kind of strolling through showing people his his collection. <laughs> no, well, he absolutely did because he's got a bit of a sad history to him. Where... Oh. oh, thanks a lot, Ben. No, Sorry. Well, through his silent film career, he made a huge amount of money. Okay, but he was also fairly philanthropic and he donated a fair bit of money and land around the place. To sleep cream with victims. <laughs> well, you've got the Chinese theatre in LA, uh, known oh. as Man's Chinese Theatre for yeah. a while. Nowadays it's like the TCL Chinese Theatre. What? Is it not called Man's Chinese anymore? No, it stopped like 15 years ago. Oh. It depends whoever owns the building. These days it's the company TCL owner. So okay. it's the TCL Chinese Theatre. Right. Uh, but he donated the land that that got built on. Okay, but a couple of years after that, he lost all of his wealth because there was the stock market crash in 1929. So for the last like 20 years of his career, he was doing guest spots in pretty much every single TV show you can think of. Amazing. And Batman obviously being one of them. That doesn't sound too sad. I mean, look, losing your entire (laughs) fortune, awful, but he still has a sustainable career in, you know, moderately respectable shows. And also let's ask around the table who has been in an episode of Batman. Yeah. I'm not seeing any hands up. Not yet anyway. No, no. Um, Give it time. You can read all about this dude in his biography, Sleep Cream. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's run through just a couple of key issues here. Batman is able to get into any building in Gotham with With his his bat bat key. key. And the key just looks like a regular key. Also sounds a bit creepy as well. (laughs) It reminds me like whenever a locksmith comes to break into your house, it's just like, oh my God. All of you I should be like in this. prison. Yeah. I don't like <laughs> Very this. helpful, but also chilling. Yeah. Batman oversteps a lot in this. This is the um, vigilante, uh, mm. the controversial vigilante yeah, stuff. There's a, there's a missing episode after this one where he gets tried at The Hague. <laughs> What's important to notice is that Batman's a deputized member of the Gotham City Police Department. Like, oh. how is any of this legal? Yeah, no. Very confused. 
Um, other notable things, last week we saw in the Bookworm episode a very exciting moment where Batman and Robin were trapped in a giant cookbook. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's happened book. to me with Stephanie Alexander's. <laughs> Look, so often. Uh, this week they got knocked out from a giant prop book being dropped on their heads. Oh, God. This TV show has like a resistance, an allergy to literature, doesn't it? It's like TV's the prime medium here. Books... They're evil. You're biased. You've written a book. All I've yeah, ever done is watching TV, so <laughs> I'm very firmly you in that camp. You can do both. You can do both. No. To be fair, Bruce Wayne, when he's teaching dick things, is always very pro-literature, pro-reading. That's true. That's true. So, you know, there Until is Until he some... plucks that book out of his hand and says, time for bed. Yeah. Time for bed. Psst. <laughs> That's the gas. He's also very much pro the integrity of lemonade. So there is a party oh scene boy. that they go to yeah. and Batman is very concerned about Commissioner Gordon who's had some spiked lemonade. I'm so ashamed, Batman, the way I behaved at that party. It's not your fault, Commissioner. And as he does advise... In future, be more careful from whom you accept free lemonade. That was pretty... It's good advice. That generally. makes sense because you get the end bit where he is very, very um, caring about oral hygiene and lemonade, if made too strongly with too many lemons, will erode your dental enamel. Thank you very much. I just want people to know that. <laughs> Good dental hygiene is important, as we find out at the end of this episode. Yeah, Robin, thanks to his good dental hygiene, is able to save himself from falling off a building by biting the end of the bat rope. In, in the real world of physics, Robin has no teeth or heartbeat, for that matter. You know, he would, have, he would have bitten onto that thing and then fell to his miserable death. Look, unlike Batman, I'm not a scientist, but just moments before he ends up grabbing the batarang with his teeth, mm. they defy physics again, where Batman, to save Robin, throws the batarang or drops it more than anything else. And my understanding of grade 9 or 10 science was, if you've got two objects falling, mm. it's going to go at the same speed. Now, yes. my question was, this was... In all seriousness, this was a huge suspension of disbelief requested um, from the audience. Up till now, has anything like this happened? Like this was, I felt like this was a huge shift. Mm. You know, in terms of asking the audience to believe that gravity-defying feat could yeah. have actually occurred. Or that he would, while falling, be able to just bite Look, onto really, a rope it, it and It really save threw me, Nick, because prior to that, everything was believable. <laughs> but then we got to this moment, I'm like, I'm out. I am out. I was, yeah, I was shocked. <laughs> Betrayed. There's a few aspects which you have to consider. Maybe the penmanship of the Riddler when he's writing the riddles in the sky with his, like, we all saw the no sign. <laughs> exactly. Being, and know. that was almost like a backwards N at one point where it's just like, <laughs> you've got all caps with very good kerning and leading. Yeah. Do we really believe that? Look, I got a pen license <laughs> in grade three and there was nothing to the level of what he's demonstrating here. And also, by the time you finish the first letter in the sky, you can't write out the whole riddle. All I have of it would be disappeared. Well, I have another question. In terms of um, weird underlying subliminal themes, it's a temperance party that they're serving this lemonade at. So they're celebrating the outlawing of alcohol, which was uh, constitutionally banned in the 20s, I think. Yeah, sorry, was this actually so a temperance party? Is that the deal? Yeah, it's 40 years later and they're saying, forget alcohol, alcohol's bad, we're having a temperance party. Mm. Look, if Elliot Ness was part of the Gotham City Police Department, there'd actually be some criminals being caught in that town. But are they saying, is this some kind of anti-alcohol screed? Well, maybe for children, it's like, oh. look... 
we've seen the ravages of alcohol on our adults. Mm. We're going to get you with, you know, dental enamel right. decaying lemonade instead. But if you need a lady to talk, mm. give her some gas. Basically. You heard it here first, kids. Yeah. It's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, it's a good combination lesson. Mm. Now, at the very end of the episode, has we see the unveiling of what the actual sort of uh, scheme has been all about, where Van Jones is confronting the Riddler at his apartment. And I was really CNN's hoping... CNN's Van Jones. CNN's Van Jones. Right. I was really hoping when CNN Van Jones was going to be meeting the Riddler, it would play out a bit more like at the end of Boogie Nights. You know when he goes <laughs> to buy the drugs from... Are you when he's that? whipping it are you, out yeah, in the I was car? about to say, are you talking about the very final scene I'm not of talking Boogie about Nights? the very final scene of Boogie The Nights. ding-dong scene. I'm not talking about the ding-dong scene. Oh. I'm talking about when they go to see Alfred Molina as the drug dealer, okay, and he's throwing the firecrackers at the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like the most stressful scene in cinema history. <laughs> I was really hoping something like that would play out in Batman here. Didn't happen. I no. feel like everyone tuned out after uh, you mentioned the last scene in Boogie Nights. They're just thinking about the ding-dong Roller scene. Girl does make an appearance as a villain next season in Batman, though. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> now, Ben, every time we've got a guest on, we like to know who that Batman was. So who did you grow up with? Like, what's your Batman connections? I grew up with this one. So this was my childhood, and it didn't just punctuate my childhood. In a weird way, it kind of defined my childhood <laughs> as well. So I always joke that I was half raised by my mum because, you know, I'm one of five kids, and she really um, stayed home and did all that unpaid labour raising us. And then because I'm one of five kids, I feel like I was half raised by television because when you've got that many people running around, you need something easy to make sure that they're not about to run out of Cross the road and get hit by a car. And so a lot of what I was raised on was Batman. I loved this series and I'm kind of thrilled that it's back. So your moral rationale and reasoning in life is pretty much defined by what we've seen here? Always keep a pocket of, um, you know, what is it? Sleeping cream in yeah. my back pocket whenever I go to a party, for sure. <laughs> and you, uh, you've got very good teeth as well. So something's Thank you very here. much. I really appreciate so, that. So what is it like watching it? I assume you haven't watched it in years. I haven't watched it in ages. So what is it like watching it now? It's great because all of those memories of what the show was come rushing back. The fact I completely forgot that it was always a two-blow punch. You've got the first episode that's a setup. You've got a cliffhanger. You've got, you know, same bat time, same bat channel. And I was like, oh, that's why they said that. We always say that all the time. But I forgot why they actually said that. Um, And then you've got that kind of crescendo with the kapow, boom thing. That stuff is really, really delicious. And there was a period in my life, I think when I was like eight, nine, ten years old, where I had recorded the feature-length Batman movie. You know, the one with Catwoman, Joker, Riddler, and Penguin. Batman the movie. And I had that on VHS. And I completely warped the shit out of it. I watched that so much. The scene with the shark repellent, all of that stuff. It was it was event cinema. So your Batman is Adam West. It's not Michael Keaton. It's not... Um... Well, it was Adam West to begin with, but then Michael Keaton, I think, really brought it home for me. And I'm going to say something really controversial. Let's I, hear it. I watched all of the um, Christopher Nolan Batmans. Mm-hmm. And they just never quite did it for me. I I know on an intellectual level I should like them and they're incredibly made, the artistry is all there, but I think fundamentally there is something camp about Batman and the Adam West kind of version honours that, the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton version honours that. I think the George Clooney, Val Kilmer (laughs) version maybe honours that a little bit too much, but there's that kind of fine balancing act about darkness and and ridiculousness in Batman. And I also loved, um, you know, for me, the kind of 
ultimate is probably Batman Returns, directed by Tim Burton. It's yeah. just Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Danny DeVito as Penguin. It is ridiculous. I saw some parts of it recently. Yeah. It has dated, but it's delicious. It's delicious and hilarious. Well, what I think really works for me about Batman, because I've been thinking about this a lot over the last 15, 16 weeks we've been doing this, is that Batman's the one character where you actually see that shade of the darkness that they're playing around with, the motifs of, mm. you know, he's a bat guy, but also playing around with the camp sort of lightness because the people running around in costumes, like fighting other people running around in costumes, no other superhero really acknowledges the ridiculousness of that mm. in a way that Batman does, regardless how light or dark Batman is throughout these movies and TV shows, like, he's the only character to do it. And I guess because Batman is, at the end of the day, an ordinary man with incredible wealth at his disposal and great pecs and great pecs you know depending on which batman is actually playing him at any given moment obviously not adam west <laughs> not a, look he's, he's a fit man but you know visibly it's not it's not like the sydney abs that we expect today that belt keeps getting higher on a costume yeah that's right he's that's sucking right. it in for sure yeah. until you actually have visible nipples on the, <laughs> on the costume as well but you've got to offer something else and with you know, someone like Superman or Spider-Man, there are like these really interesting kind of origin stories about how they get the superpowers. But for Bruce Wayne, it's just like, look, I'm really rich and I want to avenge people. Like it's kind of silly anyway. So, you know, hug that in, embrace it. We wrap up every week with our learnings from this week's Batman. <laughs> um, Nick, we'll start with you. What did you take away from the bat? Well, I, I mean, it's already been mentioned, but... um Never just drink lemonade when it's given to you. Mm. I, whenever someone gives me a cup of lemonade, slap it away. Yeah. yeah. I, I will not drink your lemonade. I learned that I want sleeping cream in my life. I actually want to be fed sleeping cream. It actually sounds delicious. Like, And if you're going to, like, I don't know, be completely knocked out or possibly even die from something, I don't think dessert's <laughs> a really bad way to go. Um, my takeaway was, and it was really learning a little bit about language. I learned that bread in the musician's vernacular, mm. it means money. Oh. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, there's very hip. They were uh, very hip in this episode. Incredibly true. I do love that it's Robin that has to explain it to the older people in the room. Fantastic. He's in a gassed haze as well, so that's equally impressive. Yeah. Mm. Um, this episode, I have to say, I wasn't so keen on the first part, but the second part, there were so many great lines and delivery, I was completely onto it. Um, my favorite bit is definitely the dental hygiene um, <laughs> moment. And uh, and Batman says, if more young people, and then he's distracted by a helicopter. It's very funny. You all right, Robin? Holy molars. Am I ever glad I take good care of my teeth? True. You owe your life to dental hygiene. If only more people. It's very funny. Yeah. This is it for another week's Batman land. Ben, you've written things for the fine organisation known as SBS. Mm -hmm. You have a TV have show. It's named after you. That's right. Yeah. Family Law. Uh, you can watch it on SBS On Demand, where you can also watch Batman. Yeah. So watch one or the other, then watch the other one. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Practically the same show. Uh, you've got a book that people can still read. I've the got same several name books. As the show. Exactly. The Family yeah. Law. The latest book that I wrote is the latest quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101. Uh, very, very different from my first book and definitely different from Batman as well, but it's got a 
lot of people behaving badly. They just happen to be federal politicians and journalists at News Corp. Ben, sorry, we should give you a Twitter account. Oh, at Mr. Benjamin Law. It's a right hot mess. It's Come very, join me. Sounds very proper. Mm. Yeah. And it's not at all. And if you're maybe a younger person listening to this podcast, don't follow Ben on Twitter. No. Sometimes and, and, he says some things that get a bit of attention. And also Twitter's like the old person social media platform anyway. Isn't it like the ham radio of social media? <laughs> Uh, Nicholas, you're here, but you really just sort of write stuff for our website and then tweet things. Yeah, more or less. Um, what does um, that Twitter happen? It's uh, at uh, Sleeping Cream. <laughs> Are you? It's at Nick Bassine. You can find my musings on the ham radio at the Dan Barrett. But when you are on the Twitters, talk about Batman Land. Use that hashtag Batman Land. It helps people find the show and the conversation. My name is Dan. I've been joined by Ben and Nick. We'll be back with a new Batman Land next week. Same Batman Land time, same Batman Land channel. 